This podcast is offered through the Sacred Community Project, an interspiritual collective working to lower the barriers of access to contemplative and devotional practices. Through the universal teachings of love, service, remembrance, and truth, SCP utilizes modern technology to promote eternal values. Learn more at sacredcommunityproject.org. Welcome back, everybody. This is Hari with the Sacred Community Podcast. The Sacred Community Podcast is a gathering of interviews, lecture, question and answer, meditations, live music, and much more. Today's conversation is a conversation that was recorded in October 2020 um, with Sufi teacher Bodhi B. Bodhi uh, is not only a Sufi teacher, but an ordained minister and funeral director. Um, he was also a good friend of Ramdas in the house, and we were actually able to have this conversation in Ramdas's study, where the last time that we were there together in Bodhi at all um, was as we were actually carrying Ramdas's body out of Ramdas's house and um, to the death store where he uh, laid for a couple days before being cremated. So it was really beautiful and powerful um, to be back with Bodhi and to be in that space and have those memories um, flood in and what, uh, you know, what a perfect, perfect way to have a conversation happen for, you know, somebody who is a funeral director um, and runs a shop called The Death Store. So The Death Store and the nonprofit Doorway in the Light Funeral Home, which Bodhi uh, is a founding member of. Um, mission is to empower and support families and communities with holistic, sustainable, and family-based tools, skills, and information in the caring of the dying and the dead, and to reclaim the dying and the dead as a village-building work and sacred service, reclaiming what we've given away to businesses and institutions, and finally to provide low-cost and free counseling, support, and burial to those um, in need and to ensure that no one need die alone. So if you'd like to find out more information about Doorway into Light, you can visit doorwayintolight.org. And in this conversation, uh, we'll be exploring death and dying, business of dying and the outsourcing of death and how uh, the commercialization process of that and how we can bring death and dying back into our culture and community and to re-empower our families in the process of the death of their loved ones. Um, as well as telling uh, some personal Ramdas stories. So I'm very excited to uh, bring on Bodhi, and thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. I was thinking, too, when you were, uh, when we were doing the, the mic check, when you were doing that prayer. Subhanallah. 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 We step into the presence where God is. Alhamdulillah. 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 All praise to the holiness itself. All praise. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Peace is power. We stand, we live, we walk in peace in the presence of the holy.
I'm sitting here today with my wonderful guest, Bodhi B. Thank you so much for coming on today, Bodhi. Thank you, Hari. Thanks for asking me. So today we're, uh, we actually have the unique pleasure of being up in Ramdas's study where I think it was the second to last time that I saw uh, Bodhi was actually in the study as we were um, carrying Ramdas's body out of this house for the, for the last time. So it's, it's really special to be back with you and, and even more so to be in this space like once again together. So. And this is the first time I've been in that in this room since then as well. Wow. Everywhere I look, it's Ramdas pretty much. Uh, it doesn't look like it's really changed that much, except I've always seen his chair with him in it and with it kind of kicking, it very kicked back with this amazing ocean view in front of him. And, and two uh, very strong memories of when he was laying in laying in state lying in state in this room and all the people in here around him you're um the director of the doorway into light uh nonprofit well doorway into light is the 501c3 and the death store is um our our educational resource center and store in on maui and so could you tell me a little bit about how you came to even own a place called the Death Store? <laughs> um, yes. Um, let's see now. In 2012, we, we'd already been a doorway into light since 2006. Maybe I start there because... That's that's where Ramdas came into the picture. That um, my work as a ordained minister uh, uh, led me into a lot of uh, spiritual counseling, which I would say was spiritual psychological counseling, and that was in the nineties. People started coming to me that were a dying or they knew someone who was dying, or somebody close to them had died or was dying, and they wanted counsel. And that was about 1997, and I didn't feel qualified or in any way equipped to... I didn't feel like I could really bring um, bring much to it. So, But it led me towards uh, wanting to step into that whole field. And certainly I'd, I'd read uh, most of Ram Dass's books by then and um, was very plugged into uh, his work with Stephen Levine and Dale Borglum, uh, Death and you know, Conscious Dying. Um, so I s decided to become a hospice volunteer mm. and took the hospice training here on Maui. The training itself was quite transformative. And then hospice started calling me up and um, asking me to go sit in homes of dying people, which I'd never done ever. And I'd go into neighborhoods um, I'd never even been in, um, in communities I had no, no real connection to, and uh, ended up giving a wife or a husband or a friend time to go take a walk mm. um, so I could sit in the home with a dying person. Then it seemed like I was in the school of 
what is this? How do people die? How do they do this thing? And I saw how they were doing it and how they were refusing to do it and and what they were doing instead of doing their dying. And as someone who's had a number of businesses, I started to look into, well, what's actually happening out there in the world of dying and death and started, you know, researching and looking into the funeral industry, a, ma a massive industry, uh, the cemetery industry, the casket making industry. These are massive, you know, billion dollar industries, uh, often employing quite toxic practices. And um, as many of us know, uh, too many of us have had lousy experiences um, after somebody died and going into a funeral home. And of course, being in shock and grieving is not the best state to make a business decision. And since almost every funeral home is a for-profit business, um, they're in the selling. They're in the selling business. And then I looked at the medical world in terms of how the medical world treats death and dying, and uh, and the hospice movement. And. And I noticed um, I was very connected to the um, local hospice that trained me, and still am, th 30 years later, and and saw that most of the hospices that were opening were for-profit businesses, hmm. it, at least in part because of how much money there is in the Medicare, Medicaid, um, insurance that supports most hospices. That it, it became another money-making, profit-generating mm. industry, mm -hmm. and and I saw um, that while the medical um, world was really good at diagnosing and coming up with treatments for the body itself, and that the hospices had stepped more into psychological care in terms of you could be home, you could have your family and your dogs around. Mm. Uh, many hospices had either a chaplain or a spiritual care coordinator to address some of the um, some of the social, spiritual, uh, spiritual, psychological issues. Um, but no one was really, other than Buddhist communities, I didn't see anything that was really addressing, to me, the most important aspect of death and dying, which is our connection to the holy or our, or our lack of connection to the holy and how that informs or doesn't inform how we live our life or, or not. And, and as a minister for now for over 40 years, the transformation of consciousness to me seems the most important and still the most important aspect of how we change the broken story that's playing out now. How we relate to dying and death, how we approach our dying and death, how we care for dying people and how we care for dead people. Well, I'm gonna start an organization, Doorway mm -hmm. Into Light. At the time, uh, Ramdas had only been on Maui a short period of time and at that time, we, everybody was invited over every su Sunday for satsang and uh, kirtan and hanging out. And um, so we, we didn't live far away from Ramdas. We'd come over and um, hang out and spend time with Ramdas and, and the community of people, most of whom I knew. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that um, they were short of um, 
they didn't have a hammer, for example, hmm. at that time. And, and um, <laughs> so you caught them. You caught them early. I caught them early, and so I I said to um, the people that were here at that time, I have a truck, I have tools, I have some time. Call call me up, hmm. you know, if you need help with anything. So they started calling me up, and the fir the first project I believe was was that. Um, no, it wasn't that statue. It was a it was a Hanuman statue that had come, I think, from India mm. in a wooden crate, and they couldn't get the they didn't have any way to get the box open. That was so that that was the beginning, right? Right. I love that you came over to unbox Hanuman too. <laughs> it's perfect. That was that was the first thing, and then they started calling me up to do little um, carpentry projects or this and that, and because um, you opened the Seva box with Hanuman. I mean, that, that was it. That was the opening. A, yeah, that's that. So then they asked me if I'd. Um, Ramdas was in his had his bedroom, but he had this little. You know, if you have a sliding glass door, there's usually this metal runner that the sliding glass door mm. slides on, and Ramdas wanted to be able to roll out onto his deck to look at the ocean unobstructedly, without having to call for help to get somebody to roll his wheelchair over this bump. And so they asked me if I'd build a little wooden ramp on both sides of the sliding glass door. Now, up until up until then, um, if I had any kind of idol worship around rock stars or you know famous celebrities, he was about the only one um, living that I f I felt that way about. It wasn't rock stars and celebrities. It was yeah. Ramdas, yeah. and of course Ramdas had had a powerful effect on my life. So there I was now in his room with him, just the two of us. And I, I knew I had to get over the sense of awe, kind of, or, or holding him up in some way. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he encouraged us to just have a conversation and um, connect. He was really good about it. And so over the course of what, whatever a few days it took to build this, uh, these two ramps, we got we got to know each other a little bit, and I started talking to him about this doorway into light that I was starting to work on with my wife Leila, and I had already been starting to talk about it in the community. And um, Ramdas said, "Oh well, I've been doing that work for forty years. So I want to help you." Amazing. And I was like, "Amazing! You 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 want to help me? Yeah, oh yeah, put me on your board. I'll, I'll help you." And so so I was like, "Okay." Incredible. Okay. And then, um, of course, then when I'd be talking about it in the community, well, I'm, we're doing this thing, Doorway into Light, and um, this is what it's about, and this is what we're kind of stepping into and want to do. And and they went, that's great, Bodhi, that's great. And then I'd say, and, and Ramdas is on our board now. And then they'd be like, oh. <laughs> so that was the beginning of it. Bringing and, in the hammer. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. Bringing in the hammer. And um so then we that at that point I, I wanted to I wanted to create an event to basically see who in the Maui community had interest in this in this field. And Ramda said, Well, let's invite some people I know. Oh really? Yeah, yeah, let's invite some people you know. Mm. So that was really the beginning of um Ramdas and I working together, collaborating together, starting to become friends, and 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 finding people in the community that wanted to um, 
not only awaken the Maui community, but um, also to you know be part of the global movement of awakening in this field of awaken death and dying and, and care for the dying and the dead. So that that's the beginning of it. And then, oh, oh how did I get to death's door? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's where that's where we started. Okay, so then um, I found out in Hawaii, I didn't have to do a lot to become a funeral director as long as I wasn't embalming bodies. I didn't have to go to mortuary school. Mm. I had to jump through some hoops with the state and the Department of Health. So I decided I'd become a funeral director. Then I, um, I'd already been doing counseling and started to open up to doing more counseling in this field. And then I went around, I wanted to see what what caskets, caskets cost on Maui. And so I went to the two funeral homes here and I found that the most inexpensive casket here was $1,500 and it was made out of particle board and toxic wow. glue from China. Wow, for $1,500? And, wow. and of course they don't show you that one right away wow. when you go look at caskets, yeah. right? It's, it's not in their main showroom. Like, um, so then I thought, I'm, I'm a carpenter. I build stuff. I, I've built our homes and everything, really. And I could make a really sweet um, pine box casket, sell it for 500 bucks. Mm. So I thought, okay, so I'm getting more into this counseling field. I'm starting to function as a funeral, independent funeral director. And I have these caskets now. I need a pl I need a showroom. I need an office. So I, I found I found the very place where we are now, um, nine years later. And what's the name of this place? And it, it just came to me right away. It's the Death Store. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's the Death Store. And I did. I, I, all I knew was it was the Death Store. And then I went down to the funeral home and I said, look. Um, I want to know if I can rent your crematory because I'd already um, started doing burials in cemeteries. In fact, one of the first burials we did was an ocean body burial for a friend who was turning 100, who died just before he turned 100, mm. but had made it clear to me he was going to get buried in the ocean and I was going to do that. So I went down to the funeral home because I, I didn't have a crematory, and I said, can we rent your crematory? And he looked at me and he said, you're a funeral director, recognized by the state of Hawaii. I said, yes, I am. Mm. And he said, and you sell caskets? I do. And do you sell urns? At the time, I didn't, but I thought, well, I could. And he said to me, well, you're a funeral home. Get out of here. You're, you know, you're competing with us, you know, which I thought was very short-sighted, really. Mm -hmm. um, now I send the other funeral home with the crematory uh, business. Um, <laughs> anyways, anyways, I went home. I went home and I and I said to uh, Leila, it was just like this. I said, "Guess what, honey? I have a funeral home." I mean, it, I mean, it was totally like that. Guess what? I have a funeral home. And I thought, well, okay, if that's true, and apparently it is true, I want to reinvent and revolutionize this whole notion of what a funeral home is and what a funeral home experience is. So then. Um, of course, the death store is really not a good name for the funeral home part mm. of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. For as you can imagine, or mm -hmm. as anybody could imagine, 
it's a little too yeah it's a tough invoice to get it's a it's a it's a it's a tough intro um as it is as it is um people would come up to me and they'd say that's amazing what you're doing Bodhi, but you can't call it the death store and i was like well, well why not <laughs> um, bec um because it felt to me that death and dead and die have become taboo words totally. in, in the culture itself right yeah. like your phone died mm -hmm. you know your car died um your dog died but grandma passed away yeah and i thought well this is i just want to um confront it head on so it's not the life and death store mm -hmm. or somebody said what about the till we meet again store mm -hmm. and um I think my response at that time was, I don't think I could look myself in the mirror with a store called the Till We Meet Again store. Yeah, um, It was the death store. And I've had to go back and forth o over the years because by, because I, I met plenty of people that said I'd never go into a store called the death store. And I started to play with changing the name of it, but realized, nope, that is its name. And I think the culture is finally catching up with me. So the Death Store, um, initially, uh, in terms of reinventing and revolutionizing what the funeral home experience was, was I thought, well, it need, it's, it's got a library. It's got a bookstore. It's got all kinds of reference educational materials. Uh, and then it's got um, ecologically sane and mostly locally made caskets and urns. And in fact, we became the, the first nonprofit funeral home in the state of Hawaii. It's still actually the only nonprofit funeral home in Hawaii. And, and, and also the only certified green funeral home in Hawaii. But the funeral home is really doorway into light. So the death store actually is three, three things. It's, it's the corporate office of our 501c3. It's our funeral home. And it's... The Death Store. Mm. Well, I, having been to the Death Store, I, I love it because one, the name, it, you know, it it's evocative in in that way of, of death has kind of become that taboo word. You know what's funny, yeah. Ari, mm. is that is that people under forty go, "Wow, that's so cool, the Death Store," and people over forty go, "You, you can't call it the Death <laughs> yeah. Store." Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, well, I love it, and you know who else loved it was was Ramdas in the in going back to you know one of his whole crusades was bringing death out of the closet, as he said, and and you know to put it right up front, not only in the name, but as you walk into the store to stare at a coffin, you know, within ten feet of you that's standing upright, and um, to not only and then a couple feet beyond that, see the freezer where bodies may or may not be, you know, at the moment in storage. So with your work, how um, how do you see this kind of change the life of family and friends who get to be involved with the death process of their loved one? Well, besides being, uh, I would say, death illiterate, you know, we're, we're grief illiterate. And I'm glad to see it's getting a little more airplay now. And And what I saw was that the the default muscle was when somebody died at home the family was on the phone right away grandma mm. died please come and get her mm. and the next time that family saw grandma they were either picking up the ashes which are bone fragments or they saw grandma embalmed looking 
kind of like grandma. Mm. And that that gap between grandma dying at home and the next time they saw grandma mm. was a gigantic break in their ability to not only participate in the mm. process, but in their own grieving process. And I thought, we, well, what a tremendous disservice we're doing to ourselves and to us as a, as a people, as a community. And I thought, well, how, how do we, how do we, resp what, 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 how, what is it supposed to look like? And of course, if you just go back now 100, 150 years, you see what people have been doing forever and what people are still doing in so many countries in the world where they're with the body, right? In fact, in some places, the town businesses close down hmm. as, as opposed to what, what happened, what's happening um, in the West is that most funeral homes now have a nondescript um, van. Hmm. And so they come into your neighborhood and you don't know your next door neighbor just died. Hmm. Hmm. They don't want to upset you, you know, and you know what? Yeah. I mean, we found it really hard uh, to find a place for a friend of ours who was dying because people didn't want to rent to somebody who was going to die in their house that they were going to then rent again mm. because of all of this, right. right, all of it. And so, you know, at the beginning I, I said, the death store, there ought to be one next to every Starbucks in America. Then I got a little more conservative and thought, well, every other Starbucks in America, that the, that there needs to be something that reminds us of our dying and our death in every mall, in every community, and to bring it back into community life because yeah. we've done tremendous harm by pushing it out of village life, out of the commons, out of the community conversation. Would you talk to me a little bit, because you mentioned that um, bringing the spirit back in um, to that process was so important for you. Could you talk a little bit about um, how you do that in your spiritual path? Well, I, uh, I, I do my best not to separate us. I have to integrate my spiritual path, path in every, every part of my life, in every part of my life. And what I, what I realized was the, the truth, you know, when I ask 100 people, how many of you, you know that you're going to die and you don't know when? And a hundred people raise their hand and look at me like, well, that's a dumb question. Everybody knows that. But the truth is hardly anybody actually knows that other than as another something in their head, another factoid. Yeah, sure, we're all going to die and we don't know when. Because when I look around, I don't, I don't see very many people that are acting like that's actually true, that mm -hmm. we're going to die and we don't know when. And I think it's such a powerful, maybe the most powerful piece of information that we have to inform us, like people say, well, what's the meaning of life? I think the meaning of life is the meaning we give to life. And I think the truth that we're gonna die and we don't know when is the most powerful piece of information that shapes how we make meaning out of our life. And, and, and it further causes many of us to wanna know, well, who are we? What is this thing, death? What is it that actually dies? Is there something that actually survives death? This thing people call soul, for example. Where is that soul and, and, and what is it? And I think it led a lot, many of us to 
find out the truth of who we are and, and what it is that doesn't die. So then how do, how do we learn to, see it's very real to me that we die, hmm. right? That I see, I'm around that a lot and it informs my life. So this, I don't procrastinate at, anymore. I'm not lazy unless I want to be. Hmm. I've had two. I wish I could say the same. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think many of us have had the experience that we didn't know that that was the last time we were going to see somebody mm. or the last time we were going to speak with somebody. And so as it becomes more real, realized to me, embodied, that we're going to die and we don't know when, every time I'm in front of somebody now, I want to bring everything to that moment mm. because this, this is the connection I have with this person now and this might be it. And, and of course, that plays into every moment of my life. Right. So then I, I, it, 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 that's where my work as a, a minister and spiritual guide actually came together with this work of changing how we approach dying and death and how we care for the dying and the dead. That the, that the recognition and the truth that we're gonna die and we don't know when, in, in my view, is the most powerful spiritual, spiritual transformational tool I've come across, and, and I've been teaching and studying and immersed in the Sufi tradition for 40 years, mm. and also have studied many other paths and uh, followed a number of other paths. And nothing seems to shake people as quickly and radically as finding out that your best friend just died, or you just found out you may have a terminal illness. And, and now, um, Having having facilitated many weddings in the last forty years, uh, now I find myself facilitating memorials and funerals, mm. and they're super potent, mm. uh, powerful um, places and times for. Uh, it's very powerful when uh, when many people are in that state. Uh, I mean, what happens when you when, when people find out somebody close to them just died? Well, what happens to most people is all of a sudden they're shaken into the preciousness and fragility of life and there's no room for any of the bullshit and crap and, uh, mm. and what I call, and we get shaken out of our cultural sleepwalk we find ourselves in so often. So when I go to a funeral or memorial and there's, uh, there could be hundreds of people in that shaken, fragile, precious, precious place where there's no room for crap, I mean, that's, I would call that a spiritual experience. Yeah. That is the spiritual experience, to come completely into the moment of how precious and fragile and real it is right here and now. So that part is very real to me. The part about that there is no death, I know that's true, but it's not as realized mm -hmm. in my cellu on cellular level mm -hmm. yet. And people say, well, there's no such thing as death. I say, yeah, that's true. I teach that, and there is. Mm -hmm. And now, now I even see that if, if the absolute reality, or what we call the absolute reality, is there is no death, and what we call the relative reality is there is death. That many people and me as well used to think that the absolute reality was somehow more true mm. and more real than the relative reality. I don't. I don't think that at all anymore. Yeah. It's almost a dismissal. 
of the of the relative reality to push up to try to go higher. Even this absolute. notion of samsara or maya, mm. I think, is misunderstood in the light of this is just an illusion. This is just a, this isn't real. I don't know. I was in the ocean today. That was very real. Uh, I I no longer think this is this is just the body. It's not me. It's just the body. It's you know it's a rental or it's just a vehicle. Well, no, I don't I don't think that's true. That's not my experience. I would uh, you know what I would what I say is we're not just the body. Mm-hmm. So that's some of what's I think responding to what you're pointing to. Totally. Totally. The I am not the body versus the I'm not just the body has been as big an, a big one um, for me recently as well. Just realizing that, and Ramdas talked about it, at some point in time, you're going to realize that your body is your temple and your vehicle for your consciousness and how you're able to engage within this plane, and you're going to need to take care of it. At a, at a point, or, that, was, that was a big wake up for him, right after his stroke. Yeah, that he realized he kind of had shined on taking care of his body. Yep. Even the notion of soul, like where where is it? Right. You know where where exactly is it in the body? Yep. And then I see what happens now around dead people, and I see the presence that is still very much there for quite some time. And how people want to honor that. In fact, I had a powerful experience recently with a Hawaiian family that I went to. I went to pick up this family's son, and I I asked them where would they like me to bring his body. And the mom said right away, "Don't call it his body. Call him by his name." which wasn't at all typical in my experience here on Maui. And so I had to really look at that. And of course, the Hawaiian people, I feel that the mana, the essence, is very much still very connected to the bones themselves, the evi. Oh, here, here's another piece to that, is that uh, most people now are getting cremated. Yes. Why are they getting cremated? Well, first and foremost, it's less costly than burial. Another reason is the current model of cemetery in America doesn't make sense. Basically, it's wasteful use of land, land that really has one single purpose that has now been taken out of the public domain forever. Mm -hmm. But I discovered there's a third reason why people don't relate to burial, which has really brought me back to burial. Now, in America, the average person moves every five years. It might be less than that by now. And so for most of us, we don't live anywhere near where our people are buried. Uh, Most of us may not even know where our people are buried and have really lost that connection to being and visiting the grave gravesite of the people who have come before us. Not to mention that um, uh, most of us have come from Europe and have really lost track of where our people are in, in that particular lineage. 
So I had to rediscover that myself in 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 facilitating burials and tuning into what it is to come and sit at the graveside. And of course, now people want to have trees uh, planted over their over their graves. And that doesn't even touch the fact that cremation is a very toxic, energy-consuming practice. And of course, that'll lead to our conversation about ipuka. So, I mean, the question that brings up for me too is: is so what have you found um, are the more sustainable practices, the things that are going to make sense, kind of as we go forward? Um, well, we—that comes back to something you said about the moment of death. Even that, I think, is a fallacy that there is such a thing as a moment of death. So now, now um, the medical world decides that if your heart and your brain have stopped, you're dead. But of course, that's only they only can measure it to the degree of the sensitivity of their current machine. Mm. And as their machines get more sophisticated and sensitive, they're going to find out what many of us already know. You don't die all at once, mm. which is why it could take up to three days. Mm. So there is no real moment of death. And with the current model, we could be short-shrifting that, that whole process of we, the timeline. We, 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 certainly what the Western yeah. world is. You know, I ask people, so when do you start to die? <laughs> and again, most everybody will say, what do they say? When you're born. Yeah. Where did we get that from? I think the first time I saw it was Buddhist teaching. Hmm. And I think um, I think that's a huge, again, a huge disservice and a huge misunderstanding because dying people are doing something that we're not doing. And you wouldn't say to a, a mom that just had a brand new baby, what a beautiful new baby, too bad it already is dying. Hmm. It's not true. It's just not true. Dying people are doing something we're not doing. Hmm. And unfortunately, most people start to die when their doctors tell them they're dying. That so many of us are so disconnected from our own bodies, we need somebody else to tell us when we're dying. So in, in a sense, we, take, we devalue mm. what's actually happening. So when do we start to die is actually a great question. And, 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 yeah, and what's, your, what's your answer? When we find out that we're um, that our body mm. is in fact shutting down and dying, that there's some. Uh, hopefully, we have an inner knowing that we're connected enough to our bodies that we have an inner knowing that this body is starting to shut down. This body has had enough. It's breaking down and shutting down. And when you know you're going to die, and you don't know when. It shouldn't really come as a surprise to you or I if I find out it's today. Hmm. And that's that's almost too much to... I understand why we all go into diversion and distraction and denial and avoidance. It's a very razor's edge hmm. to live with the truth that we're going to die and we don't know when, and my kids are going to die and I don't know when, and my wife's going to die and I don't know when. Yeah. I used to grab my, when my kids were teenagers, uh, they'd say, okay, I'm going out, I'm going surfing, I'm going to go see my friends. 
I just grab him, wrap my arms around him. I love you so much. I love you. I love mm. you. I'm so sorry. I'm such a lousy dad. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I love you so much. And I just grab him and hold him, right? Because they were just like, leave us alone. We're just going out. Yeah. But of course, just going out often turns into something else that we didn't get any advance notice about. Yeah. So, you know, how do we live with that? How do we live on that edge of how precious and temporary, I mean, impermanence is the story, but how do we live with that and still be able to have fun and play? Yeah. That's a great question. Well, I, I loved Ramdas talked about uh, changing death as an adversary to death as your friend, you know, in, in that. <clears throat> as a lover, I think, is the, is the place we want to get with it, that we don't accept the fact that we're going to die or that we don't accept the fact that we're dying, that we love it. And we mm. recognize that the whole thing works because there is such a thing as death. And, th and this whole... Um, people don't want to die, and, and this whole you know, this whole movement towards you know you, you know making it so you don't have to die. I think that's madness, madness. It's funny though; people want to live longer and longer, but nobody really wants to get old. Ramdas used to talk about um, when he would go, when he was going to be with somebody that was dying that day, that he would it would fill him with excitement because he was going to be. Um, in the presence of truth that day. Is that a thing that you feel or wh what is it like for you when you're going to be with somebody who is in the process of dying? Uh, my practice is to uh, f fully show up. To fully show up in the moment and to be able to meet uh, what's being uh, presented to me, what's in front of me, whatever it is. And Dying people don't have a lot of tolerance for bullshit. And sometimes they don't have time for me. <laughs> Not often uh, at this point. Um, I'm aware that when I walk into the home of a dying person, especially somebody that I've never met before, I'm a stranger, that anything, right? No, So I, got, I have to check pretty much anything I might be carrying from my day or my mind, mind wheel, I've got to check it at the door, and, and no, you know, no, no, no conceptions or, or stuff going on, right? I've got to check it at the door, and be willing to be be bear witness, to be able to bear witness, uh, fully, to what I see, and to what I hear, and to and to do my best to listen as deeply as I possibly can, which means to I have to, I have to have a pretty quiet mind to be able to listen well, not not only to what's being said, but what's not being said. Mm. Um, it's it's a practice. It's it's in a sense it's no different than sitting here with you or any other moment, but it's more demanding. Right, I can get sloppy uh, in many situations and do, and fall into that cultural hypnotic sleepwalk. But it's unacceptable, and um, and 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 if that shows up at the bed of a dying person, uh, something will smack me. So it's um, it's it's a powerful. You know, I, I don't know if excitement would be what I would say, uh, but certainly there's there's energy around. Uh, 
um, meeting the the unknown. Really, mm. it is the stepping into the unknown because I don't know what it's like to die. Yes, there are many kinds of death, uh, but I don't know what it's like to be doing what this person is that I'm visiting is doing. Right. And so I have to be really careful about who I think I am in that situation because if that person is the dying person and I'm the whatever, the counselor or the, we're stuck. Mm -hmm. And I don't want him to be stuck. In, in fact, um, I know Ramdas has talked about this, about how um, when he went to visit a dying person and, and he looked into that person's eyes as, as a soul-to-soul -soul connection in being in that moment together, that, that uh, his experience was what a relief it was for that person who was surrounded by people that only saw him as a dying person. Mm -hmm. 100%. Which, which is why I meet people who are dying that don't want anyone to know because they don't want to be seen as a dying person. And there's, of course, that to me, that's very unfortunate to basically keep your community yeah. away from your dying. Yeah. Because I don't think your life belongs to you. I don't think, I know my life doesn't belong to me. And so I know my dying does isn't just about me. And that, that piece, that my dying isn't just about me, well, that comes up in the conversation with people who want to end their life. My dad said that to me when, when I was in that space. And that your life is, or well, it was, it was your life is not your own in, in the way of, of seeing how connected I am to all of these other people and that and and one of the one of the most beautiful things that he said to me in that moment too was if you want to die that's okay you can die and you can renounce your name and you can go and you can live in service and serve other people because that will be and 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 you can go and act purely as a cog but your life is not your own in that way and that smacked me upside down wow your for dad sure. told you then he did you know, we do we do these trainings that we've been doing every year for a number of years, where doctors and social workers and nurses and hospice people and chaplains and artists and shamans and healers and lay people come for the um, to learn about caring for dying people, full spectrum. You know, spiritual, emotional, logistical, psychological, um, and I'll ask a hundred people, how many of you have ever thought about taking your life? And then, you know, a few hands will go up. And then a few more hands will go up. And then more hands will go up. And then there's 20 or 30 hands that have gone up. And I say, I say look around. And of course, out of that 20 or 30 people, <clears throat> there might be another 20 or 30 that are too embarrassed to raise their mm -hmm. hands. Mm -hmm. And I say, look around, because you might have thought you'd be the only person in this room. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, you, and you get to see how common totally. and widespread. Totally. Well, and that's one of the disservices, I think, too, with with like mental disorder and mental disease and and the categorization of these people, you know, as even depressive or suicidal, you know, where we go to the label so often instead of the person or 
our sense of community that you know this is part of our humanness there are these feelings of of you know overwhelmed sometimes or wanting to run away or deep pain and sorrow and 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 you know we were labeling those so quickly as illnesses instead of offering any kind of tools or or um ways to to reframe and explain that as this is who we are you know this is part of the story yeah i went to a, i was invited to a hospice meeting and uh it was about it was about a patient who was depressed and so there were you know there was talk about what medication would would be best and uh, or or what the social worker could do um nobody ever said what's underneath the depression you know, no, nobody seemed to really want to speak to, you know, you know, it's a dark night of the soul kind of thing. It's a spiritual totally. crisis. Totally. You're dying. Totally. We were talking about the, uh, the demand of the moment of going into uh, the room with somebody who's dying and, and the kind of clean slate and integrity that you need to come in with in that moment and, and, what are some of the practices that help bring you into that place? Well, I like to take lots of showers. I like to get in the water. I'm fortunate I get to be in the ocean quite a bit. I, li I live in the jungle, so I, uh, nature is a huge, a huge piece for me. Now I have young grandkids around, so uh, I get to see innocence, that there's still innocence alive in the world, mm. uh, to kind of... Um, bring me back to um, the, the simple innocence of children and nature. Uh, but I certainly have spiritual practices in terms of uh, breath practices and mantra practices. And um, sometimes I, I, I read the news. Sometimes I read the news and it gets me crying. And, uh, um, and, th and that'll bring me into um, back, to, back to home base. Hmm. So it's all about remembering and, and stopping long enough to come home into the moment, into the breath, into where I am right now, whatever it is, whatever I'm feeling, if it's out of whack. Um, and in terms of integrity, well, I'm doing my best uh, from the time I get up to the time I go to sleep to um, to be on to be on track to show up to uh, to be on in, on intention and in integrity as best I can and sometimes I do better than others so then in that in that light showing up for somebody who's dying isn't sometimes it's just like the next thing to do kind of thing it's not oh well I better I better shape up now kind of thing hmm. You know, I, I want to be shaped up before I have to shape up. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So then I make it, you know, not not only um, my ministry to myself, but um, my life. My life. So stopping, I think, is um, I would say is, is, is you know wherever I'm at in in, in the day. And I and I and I make an effort to do it um, more than a few times a day. You know, I think there's that story about you know God. God told Abraham, "I want you to pray continuously." 
and I think that's how it eventually it got compromised down to five times a day for the for the Muslims. Hmm. Uh, we can't do it all day, but how about five times a day or whatever hmm. it is, right? Um, and maybe the five times a day is a way to help bring us back, right? When we fall, when we fall into um, what we fall into, to basically uh, to navigate um, what's expected of us in a in a culture that that doesn't see us as spiritual beings. Yeah. Would you speak a little bit to the path of Sufism and the the Sufi heart? Sure, uh, I'll go back to something you did ask me that I didn't really get to, which is about what are, what are sustainable practices. You know, well, sustainable practices. I mean, for the longest time, uh, actually, at, at the beginning, we were when we were nomads, and we were following the flock. For example, you know, Grandma would just say, "Look, I'm I'm done. I'm going to sit down on the side of the trail, and um, I love you all, and carry on." Mm. And um, that's that's how maybe how we started. Um, may, maybe the following year. We knew where grandma was buried because the grass was taller there and the flock stopped to eat the grass. We started visiting grandma every year because it was easy to find where the grass was taller. Right, then we settled down and grandma got buried in the backyard. Right. Then we didn't have a backyard and so we got, grandma got buried in the ch a church graveyard. Right. Then, then we we got somehow kind of beyond church, and then there was cemeteries, and then there was the Civil War was really the beginning of the funeral home in America, when mm. there were so many dead young men, mm. and and that's when uh, embalming actually came to America. Fascinating. It is fascinating. So, sustainable practices, are, in my view, is uh, very grandma. I always pick on grandma. In the backyard, you know, plant something. Don't plant a body six feet in the ground where there's very few uh, bacteria and microorganisms to eat the body. You know, the earth has given us so much, so much, you know, everything really. I say, in some way, you could say, my life doesn't just not belong to me, it belongs to the earth. Mm. Um, here's a way to give back to the earth, feed the earth. Um, then in something's going to grow, whether it's the grass or whether you plant something. Um, that looks the most sustainable to me, and it doesn't require experts or specialists or um, that, 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 you know, and I, I love the feel of, of what that is because we've, we've done some of those. Mm. Uh, taking a body out and burying it in the ocean is a beautiful, um, very beautiful, powerful. And that that feels very sustainable. It's you know some diesel fuel, but not much. Mm -hmm. Not com certainly not compared to cremation. Right. And and those are those are far from what commercial cemeteries uh, do and require at this point. Concrete or plastic boxes. Uh, embalming fluid is it's amazing how many hundreds of thousands of gallons mm. go into the earth every year and. Mm. Um, formaldehyde's cancer-causing chemical. Um, hundreds of tons of metal and tropical hardwoods. 
you know, go into the ground every year and hundreds and hundreds of tons of concrete. Um, doesn't make sense. Never did, but it certainly doesn't make sense now. Totally. So for people who have a loved one or who may themselves be in this process or wanting to at least plan for it, um, who may not have the benefit of being on Maui, what are some things that they can look for within their own community? Um, what's some kind of um, intro advice that you could give to people who are looking to plan that or in, and potentially some avenues where they can further educate themselves? And we can attach any kind of stuff in show notes as well. Well, green burial grounds in America are sprouting up most everywhere. Uh, there's a green burial council online uh, that will point you to the nearest green burial ground. Uh, green funeral homes, uh, those are more; those are harder to find. But even that's sprouting out and the, uh, sprouting up. And there's home funeral guides and death doulas. Um, so that whole movement is 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 growing um, in America and in mo in most places. Uh, and again, you can Google all all of those things. Home home funerals is a actually having the funeral in the home. Hmm. Uh, we've been we've been doing that for years. Uh, it's 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 the it comes from the impetus to take something back that we gave away. Industries didn't take it from us. We gave it away. Yeah. And and when we realized that by having given it away, we robbed ourselves of very powerful and important uh, village building, community building, uh, sacred work. So in the recognition that we want to do something that's sustainable, that's not toxic, and we want to do something that's family-oriented and doesn't require a lot of money, Mm -hmm. And and hiring experts and strangers and specialists, you know, bringing bringing it home, bringing it to how it's been done for thousands of years, really. Totally. So you asked me about the Sufis. So the particular um, Sufism, we're not Muslims, and most Sufis are Muslims, and the particular um, lineage stream that that this Sufi path comes from is India. And Hazrat Anaya Khan was the man who brought Sufism to Europe and America in the early 1900s. And at that time, it was a radical message that he brought, which was that there's only one true God reality. Depending on where you live and what culture you grew up in, um, you have your name for it. But we're talking about the one thing, which is beyond name and form but is real and true and is inside of each one of us, lives inside of each, each of us, that connects us all into really one thing. Mm. There is oneness. And nature isn't something out there. In fact, Anaya Khan said uh, the, most, the holy book is the sacred manuscript of nature itself. And, and I've taken that to heart. I've been living immersed in nature for pretty much 40 years. And actually, that's the best place to learn about life and death. Hmm. So that was his message, uh, a radical message at that time. That uh, and it's and it's uh, it's it's really no different than uh, Ramdas's message. And so there, in our Sufi lineage, there are Buddhists and Jews and and Christians and on and on and on. 
right? In the recognition that it's a way to practice, right? It's it's a, it's a path that's about the same. It's about the same thing, regardless of what we call it. It's what it, what is it that connects us to that place where the holiness lives here and now. So, w- what language is it, right? Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. the language that works? Is it is it a is it a bhakti path, right? Is it a devotional path? Is it a service path, right? Is it a studying, right? On and on and on, right? And the yogas talk about it, mm. you know. So, so the heart, um, as a representative of the dwelling place of the soul, with wings has become the symbol of our, our particular lineage, the heart with wings. And it's a, um, it's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful symbol to remind us of, um, of who we are and, and our divine inheritance. So in fact, now when I teach about um, preparing for death, I teach about the three hearts. Congestive heart failure, is one of the leading causes of death in the, in the West. And of course, many of us know that this, we, don't sep- we can't separate the physical from the rest of who we are. Mm-hmm. So if you think of one heart as the physical heart that's beating inside our chest right now, and most of us know by now what causes that heart to get congested. We don't eat right, we don't breathe right, we don't live right, we don't exercise right. We get sick. In fact, I was thinking about why old people are considered high risk for COVID mm. or for the flu. And it's because most old people are really sick. Right? I meet 60 and 70 year olds that are really that have a lot of sick stuff going on. Mm. And of course, uh, that would cause your immune system to be pretty shot. Mm. So that's the one heart. Yeah. And the second heart is, is, and Ram Dass talked about the three hearts. Uh, the second heart is the emotional heart. So, you know, how 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 many how often have we discounted our feelings, and not and not allowed our feelings to have the room and the space to to do their thing? You know, how, how many of us are grieving that haven't allowed ourselves to to grieve? Anybody that's paying attention to what's happening in the world, you know in terms of climate, in terms of how many species have disappeared and are disappearing, in terms of what's happening to the land, the water, the oceans, the, the air, you know, not to mention what's happening in the economic and political climate of the world and the tremendous amount of injustice and poverty and racism and on and on and on. Uh, mo- anyone who's paying attention must be grieving, but how many of us are allowing that grieving to have its way with us so there's the congested emotional heart. Then, then the third heart is the spiritual heart. You know, how many of us know or have a sense that, that that there is something beyond the body and the mind? And are we doing what what we need to be doing to continue to cultivate and deepen and make that relationship real? And where does that get stuck? And it just sounds like a bumper sticker stuff, right? Um, how many of us have spiritual heart congestion? Yeah. Yep. So what are some of the, uh, what do we do? 
What do we do with our <laughs> spiritual heart congestion? Uh, I don't know. I'm not, you know, my solutions are not your solutions. I, people ask me questions and I'll say, well, that's a good question. <laughs> or what would be a better question? You know, I think living with a good question is uh, more powerful than uh, me, me telling you what I, what I think is the answer. But, but certainly I, I, I have to work at having ways to shake myself um, out of sloppiness and cultural hyp- hypnosis to shake me into uh, the preciousness and fragility of, of, all, of all of it and how quickly change happens. And certainly the, um, the mantra that we're going to die and we don't know when is, is one of those very practices that uh, I thought about getting the tattoo. Mm. Um, uh, I don't think I will unless I can do it in some other language maybe. But to, to well, there you the, go, audience. That's but the, the <laughs> but the re- the recognition of, I mean, impermanence is 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 the most powerful teaching, or or certainly one of them, and and we get stuck in thinking that this is how it is, and we don't want it to change, and we've been poorly trained in in adapting to change, mm. uh, but change, uh, adapting to change is a spiritual practice, and it's all changing. And I think right now, uh, um, most people are in a big, I don't know. Uh, I don't know, I think it's a very powerful place. You know, in the West, it's often considered a weakness to say, I don't know. Nobody wants to say, I don't know. Totally. You know, the truth is, we don't know. Mm-hmm. And and of course, given what's happening right now, uh, October 2020, uh, I think most people are very afraid because of the, I don't know scared big time yeah you know i I was teaching a class i called the space between hope and hopeless you know it's like how do we stand and what do we stand on when there's nothing out outside of ourselves that we can count on you know what is there that we can count on well love is one thing we can count on for whatever and whoever you know you know what? You know what's real. What do we know is true? Hmm. Yeah. You know what's that? What's our lifeboat? Um, when when uh, things are breaking down and falling apart, which they are, and and to a large degree need to, because we're in a very broken story that's killing the world, and we're not going to get there just by flicking a switch or trying a new techno toy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like the it, it's required at this point that we not abandon not abandon ship and turn around, but to bring with us, you know, these things that we've had with us forever: the uh, consciousness training, spirituality within our lives, the family unit, uh, close communities that raise children um and then and then die together as well and and bringing that back into that not only nature but just a natural nature flow um you know i talked about um the practice of stopping the whole we the whole world needed to stop (laughs) you know that's the gift of covid right what was going to make us stop you know 
actually it was it was quite um pain uh, in some ways it wasn't a hurricane it wasn't fires it wasn't flooding in that way it was a fairly benign way not benign in that it didn't it hasn't caused many people to die and suffer but something had to make a stop and now we see the reefs are coming back yeah for example yeah you know if if we wanted the earth to survive we had to stop the madness totally and it's crazy cuz fire you know fires and floods wouldn't have stopped planes you know nothing would have had the kind of or not nothing but you know what happened and how everybody had to stop and and <clears throat> there was also i think you know a lot of i think there's a lot of discomfort unpacking right now of people having to finally be with themselves for a moment that's the other piece self isolation caused people to have to sit with themselves yeah you know we we are we are i think i think chogyam rinpoche rinpoche said um there were two kinds of laziness there's the laziness of the all the, all the men in india that'll sit around doing nothing all day and drinking tea and telling stories and then there's the western form of laziness where we're so busy doing all this important stuff that we never have time for the really important stuff mm. and, and and to see that as as a form of our laziness that we all we want to do is create distractions to keep us from actually recognizing what's going on right now and i understand why a lot of people don't want to stop because they don't love their relationship they don't mm. love their life mm-hmm. they don't love their job and to actually stop and feel the pain of that is too much for many people and so we keep i mean we are the culture that is uh we've perfected entertainment and avoidance and you know on and on and on sex drugs rock and roll uh netflix facebook mm-hmm. uh food you name it uh, we are we have excelled as a people to not confront um what is true here and now and the fact that we're going to die and we don't know when so so like you said not only did we have to stop but in self isolating uh, many of us had to look inside okay. um and the third piece of that was we were confronted with the possibility that we could die and the people we love could die so all of a sudden we were all having what i call a close encounter with death mm-hmm. and then and then to top it off if that wasn't big enough in one day everybody was wearing a mask mm. who who could have imagined that yeah i know you know there's a teaching about how quickly things can change well and you know i would throw to that i wish it was everybody that had gone with the mask um and i'll throw in a fourth thing right which is you know that we've i think there's a reclaiming of instead of going for all this outside leadership we're realizing that we need to uh self-govern a little bit within our within our own selves to not just take a blind faith uh you know a lot of the misinformation that we're being given these days and that we need to uh kind of relook at ourselves with our own values and morals as to uh how can we best serve 
how ourselves how- and our family and our communities at this moment because you know government or it, it's not even that they might not have our best interests in mind but nobody knows your family like you and your community and how can you show up here and really make a in in an impact at this moment and not wait for a governing body to come make that change for you mm-hmm. Be, being uh, information overload being able to discern what is true I like I tell people um, why don't you start with what's most important to you mm. and then um, okay so then what's most important today you know, because at this point, we, it's hard to know what is real and what's true in terms of outside information. And of course, outside information means we're not ex- we're not there to experience whether that really happened and whether that's really true. And we've we've already been shown that uh, they make up stuff. So again, how where how do we stand? What what do we stand on? How do we how do we find our way? And stay sane. Yeah. I think service actually is, for me, that's that's the path, mm. right? And th- and that's something I can stand on. That um, maybe I'll help somebody today. And sometimes I do. How do you deal uh, with those days when you come home and it feels like you you didn't? Or, you know, any kind of that self-defeatingness that so many of us get stuck with. I, I don't get into self-defeat, but I certainly make mistakes. And, you know, and, and sometimes I just feel like, I just feel like shit that I made a mistake. And um, sometimes in the work that I do, it really hurts me when I made a mistake uh, with a dying person or with their, with their family for example. But I have to go, okay, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to, I have to do that differently next time. And, and then I, and then I can get up and move forward and not get caught in, um, you know, I like to tell people, it's not what you think that's the problem. It's what you think about what you think. Mm. That's the problem where you get caught in self-judgment and self-criticism and blame and guilt and shame. And you're constantly looking in the rear view mirror and then you forget what's, you don't get to see what's in front of you if you've got so many rear view mirrors. And so I'm, I'm doing my best to notice when I make a mistake and 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 really sit with, why that was a mistake and why that can't happen again. And hopefully it doesn't happen again. Hmm. But sometimes I need to go home and turn on the tube or, you know, I don't, I don't have a TV, but, but sometimes I have to go home and, you know, turn on Netflix or whatever it is. Right. I just need, okay, I need a break. (laughs) Yeah. I hear you. It's intense, you know, to be, to be fully alive um, takes a lot of energy actually. It takes a lot of energy to stay awake. Have you found have you found difficulties within your off moments with that, you know, with that kind of awareness of that there isn't an off moment in that kind of a way and that like the aware of having to take that kind of a space? Uh, sometimes <laughs> Leila and I look at each other and we just go, let's just go blob on the couch. Mm-hmm. 
and um, there's no judgment about it. It's like, you know, time out. Yeah. Time, you know, time out because because um, I work hard at what I do, and 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 my prayer is to um, is to really allow the holiness to uh, do the work, do the heavy lifting, and 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 help me. And I think my prayer is ans- is being answered all the time when I um, stop and remember and ask for it. Uh, and I think it's it's uh, served me really well in my life. Um, I've come a long way. I didn't start out as a kid wanting to be a funeral director, for example. That, I, that didn't really cross my mind. Um, uh, you know, I, you know, I, people that don't have a spiritual practice, or I don't know how they make it. I really don't know how. What are they holding on to that? I don't know. I don't know how people, you know, it's hard enough with a spiritual practice and a real one, a, a real grounding practice that works, that makes yeah. sense. Um, and as far as people that are still making widgets for companies that don't care about them, you know, I, I hope that this time where maybe their company uh, couldn't make widgets, uh, that they got to see that they wanted to, you know, that they wanted to be part of something that did make sense and did add value. And, and I see when people are dying, there's a lot of suffering around that. What did I do with my life? Mm. Yeah, a lot of suffering. I wanted to touch in on that. Uh, talking about like, yeah, I don't know how people do it without spiritual practice. And I think for, I know for, this has come up with my my girlfriend and I, and thinking back to. Uh, where I was working with severely, severely um, autistic children who were to be part of the school, you had to have extreme self-injury or um, or violence and, and aggressions. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, I would come home, I would think about the time that I got to spend here with Ram Dass. I would get to think about the fact that you know, I was listening to like an hour, two hours, three hours of lecture a day, trying to do mantra while I'm at work. And recognizing, you know, that there were so many people who were there who were even putting in better effort, better job than I am kind of thing. And I'm struggling along with every tool that I can possibly have in the toolbox. And and I have those thoughts, too, of, you know, of like, wow, if I didn't have this, like, where would I be? And it's it's almost like a. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how I would play without those bumpers, because um, I find myself so often forgetting, even living in a house where Maharaji's face is at every turn, kind of thing. And, and for somebody who isn't deeply ingrained within a spiritual tradition, or maybe has felt put off to spiritual traditions in general. Um, You've mentioned the pause and being able to stop. Are, are there any other kind of practices that you could offer somebody to help bring them into uh, into their heart or give them a chance to to distance themselves from the kind of running of their thoughts? Well, you have to stop thinking so much about yourself. I think that's one of the biggest problems. We spend too much time thinking about ourselves. You know, every everything. Everything from we're not good enough 
And I mean, that's a common that's a that's a common wound in this culture. We're not good enough, and it even plays out in terms of I want to be a better person. I want to be more spiritually evolved. I want to, you know, it's still that comes from that place of I'm still not good enough. Mm. And I think you know, that's very unfortunate. You know, that's the wound of our culture. You know, this whole notion of original sin. We did something wrong right at the beginning. Whether we subscribe to that particular story or not. It sure shows up all the time. You know, I'm not good enough. I need to be better. Self improvement. Mm -hmm. I need to grow. You know, we're on it. We're on a We're on a grow thing. Uh, grow, grow, grow. Actually, if you think about it, our whole culture and whole, uh, the whole business culture is grow, grow, grow. And what is that? That's cancer. The thing that just grows, grows, grows. That's cancer. Mm -hmm. and, and we and we don't have any value for the decline that happens. Um, but this whole notion of that there's something wrong with us, and if only we were, whatever, fill in the blank, you know, that's the trap. That there's that we're still not good enough, and nobody beats us up as good as we do, um, and we spend way too much time thinking about ourselves. That's where service to me is just so valuable. You know, you know, you know, depression oftentimes is this inward spiral where all you can feel is your own pain and, and the thoughts in your head, right? Until you get out of that inward spiral where all you can feel is your own pain and suffering, that's a, that's, that, that's hell, that's a hell realm, mm. right? You know, you know, I tell people, well, maybe you need to take a walk, you know, go, go see what else is going on. Mm. Go see who's hurting more than you are. Yeah. I mean, there's infinite ways to be of use out here. Everywhere you look is crying for help and service. You know, that's my ray anyway. And I think, well, I don't understand why everybody doesn't get that. Mm. You know, well, I know why in the West because in the West it's all about me and just do it and have it your way and and um, that's what that's what's killing the world. Have it your way and. Um, what do, so what do I tell people? Stop thinking about yourself so much, you know. And people uh, uh, tell me, well, I'm I'm doing my part. I, I do a lot of meditation. Well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe so, maybe so. But I think you've got to take it out. We're community people. We're relationship people. We, in fact, you could say we are our relationships. You know. So sometimes I think people say, well, I'm, I'm working on myself. That's my part. And um, I think to some degree that's right on. And I think sometimes it's a cop out. Mm. You know, because, you know, you can never, working on yourself is endless. Mm -hmm. That doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, well, what did you do with your life? I worked on myself. Mm. Okay. okay. Uh, you know, I do my best not to have a judgment about that, but... Um, you know, some people say, you know, everybody's doing the best they can. Mm. I don't think that's true. I, I noticed when I didn't do the best I could. Yeah. And somebody will say, well, that was the best you could. You know, then we're getting into, you know, the language of it all. But I, I don't think we're all doing the best we can. I think we'd have a better world if we were all doing the best we could. Mm. 
Uh, so again, it's, I think um, it's the cultural, uh, you know, we, we're an amazing, in the West, you know, you pretty much can do whatever you want. You want to go to Peru tomorrow, you can go to Peru or, you know, whatever. Uh, but we're also incredibly handicapped because uh, we're a business culture and we're just seen as material. It's materialism, whether it's spiritual materialism or anything else. Um, and so we don't get... You know, I think we have a genetic memory of being born into a culture that saw who we were right away and sang us into life and blessed us and were so happy to see us and so so looking forward to the gifts that we brought this time around. And most of us didn't get that. We came into something very different. And so there's a longing in us to be reconnected not only to the holy itself, but to all of all of it, right? To all of it, that nature isn't something out there, that we are nature and we are connected to each other, that there is no them. You know, we're longing to be seen. If you could if you could have people really hear one thing you know what would you want to offer? i don't know i don't know about that Hari. you know it's just like you know it's just like that sound bite kind of look i can fix it if you just do this um you know everything i've said up to this point is i think is a common theme about uh sh shaking ourselves into the preciousness and fragility of this life that could end at any time that itself leads to everything that you could possibly want in your life. You know, I, I think we really want to be deep and we want to be around deep people and we want to have a deep time with the people we love and care about. And we want to feel that we've somehow added value and contributed in some beautiful and deep way that we have deep longings for this. And the rest of it is like, you know, either we think we fall short and judge ourselves for it, or we go into distraction and diversion. So we don't feel how much we're hurting and grieving and longing. That's my one thing, Ari. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Mm. that's the one thing we're going to die and we don't know when everybody you love and care about is going to die and we don't know when that's true 400 people die every day in an accident mm. every day in America 400 people go to bed tonight happy and healthy and doing all the right things drinking carrot juice right and eating veggies and tomorrow 400 people are going to die in an accident <clears throat> and I say that to people, and people just look at me, yeah, like, that's that's interesting. And nobody thinks that has anything to do with them. Right. They think that happens to other people. So, of course, my my joke is, well, look, folks, I've talked to other people, and they don't think it's them either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gotta be that's, somebody. That's the that's the that's I think is the biggest thing that we come out of this sense that we have more time. 
the notion that we have more time. You know, I have people do this exercise. Hey, draw a line across a piece of paper. That's your lifeline. Put an X where you think you are right now. Mm. Right? People put an X. And for, and for most people, it, co- it causes some response in them to notice mm. that they're uh, halfway or they're three quarters or they're more than three quarters or there's only a little left. But all of that is the illusion that there's any more time that you have. So the Sufi path that uh, that I'm uh, ordained and teach in is a path of dance and music and holding hands and looking into each other's eyes, along with you know breath practices and meditation. But we're we're a musical dance people, and that's and that's a piece of it too. You know, it's like sacred fun. Mm. You know, dancing and singing are are very you know those are spiritual practices, or can be anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Sufi dancing, for example, is not square dancing. They're very different things, right? Yeah, Sufi dancing to, about that form of zikr. Well, Sufi dancing is where we'll take sacred phrases or mantras from every different spiritual path or indigenous peoples. And we'll, and and in the sacredness of recognizing these phrases, we'll make we'll we'll have movements to it in in in, in circle. That's that's what's referred to as Sufi dancing or dances of universal peace is what it's referred to uh, now. Uh, Zikr, on the other hand, is a ver- is very much a uh, practice using Arabic mm. mantra, mm. and the and the practice again is we're in a circle. We're all moving together. We're all right, reciting the same sacred mantric phrases, where the meaning of the phrases is not what we turn it into in English, but is embedded into the sound itself. So we're moving together. We're reciting these mantric sound practices, which means that we're breathing in rhythm together. So we start out as a bunch of people, and through that synchronicity and entrainment, we become one thing that's happening. And then if the zikr is really working, we become no thing Mm -hmm. that is happening. Nobody. Mm -hmm. So it's like a group disappearing act, in a sense. Beautiful. I think we've covered pretty much everything, Harry. Otherwise, I start pulling out pictures of my grandkids. <laughs> that's the uh, that's the bonus cut material. <laughs> that's the next two hours of bonus bonus photos with Bodhi. Well, thank you so much, Bodhi, for uh, for coming and sitting down and you know sharing that that heart. And it's it's once again was just really beautiful to be able to do this back in this space with Ramdas and um I have I have felt and Ramdas felt the same thing that I was basically carrying forward his work in the death and dying world. Hmm. 
right? That that that, that I and he pretty much, you know, he didn't hand something in, into my hands, but but clearly we both saw that I was carrying that work forward. You know, Ipuka, this idea of a land uh, project that we're looking uh, to develop, and we have a beautiful model of natural burial ground and park and sanctuary. Uh, Ramdas and I started looking at land in 2006. We went to look at land, right? As as you spoke to, with this idea that uh, the the big idea was we were going to be able to burn them out in a field mm. uh, one day. So, so I feel I feel like part of the sacred bundle that I carry is this legacy work that Ramdas and a number of people got going right in the 60s and 70s and 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 on uh and um the fact that I got to uh become close friends with Ramdas and collaborator with him um to to support that he was handing me something right so I'm doing my best to you know beautiful and for people who want to get involved uh further or help support you in Apuka, uh, our doorway into light, where can they find you? Well, we've got two two websites, doorwayintolight.org, org, and then um, our beautiful land vision is at ipuka.org, I-P-U-K-A dot O-R-G. And of course, come visit us at the death store on Maui. Uh, or come talk to us about opening up a death store in your neighborhood. Um, like that. Perfect. Like that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. And uh, aloha. Thank you, Hari. That was fun. Good, good questioning. Good. Um, that went really, that was beautiful, Hari. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's easy. It was easy with you. <laughs> rum, rum. Rum, rum. <laughs>